Sorry we didn't let you in. I just now saw your text. Well, thanks. There's a stray cat with a key fob. I picked him up and used that. <laughs> Did you scan the cat itself? Did it eat yeah, the key fob? Yeah, he ate cat. the key fob. Yeah. It, was, it was a cat scan? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the intro to this one. <laughs> Are you already recording? Oh, I'm recording. Welcome to Respond Worship Podcast. We are an auditive extension of the Respond Worship Retreat, where we inspire worship ministries for greater effectiveness, instruct teams in worship skills, and ignite a community of worship teams. Yeah, that's what we do. We do that. We we attempt to do that. We strive for that. We strive. There we go. And that's most a better of word. the time, we might hit it. That's true. No. That's true. Yeah. That's what we do and who we are. Exactly. And do we want to talk about the retreat now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, I mean, we just talked about the retreat, kind of. Yeah, what we it's talked about. about but yeah. it's actually coming up, so we should plug that. We are recording this in December of 21. Yes. And the Respond Worship Retreat that we just mentioned is happening in February of 2022, and registration is now open. It is now open. So you can go to respondworship.org and scroll down to, well, actually, I guess it's at the top of the page. It says register. You click on there. It'll take you to another website. I'm sorry, this is so convoluted, but this is what happens when you register for Respond. Yep. You click on the, the registration at the top of the page. It takes you to a Maranatha Bible Camp's website. Which that is click where on, Respond happens. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, you'll click on another link, which takes you to the registration portal. Um, if you do not have a, an account set up currently, then you'll create an account and input your information. And you can sign up yourself and your team and whoever else you want to. Or you can just make people go through the process themselves as well. So that's the, a gift that keeps on giving. I will, I will agree that the registration process is a little bit convoluted. <laughs> you can tell that it's meant for children to go to church camp over the summer. Yes, yes. But don't let any of that discourage you. I love this retreat. Exactly. And it's super worth it. And so you should, you should uh, make your way through any amount of difficulty to register. Whatever it finds. Where, if it takes you to like the... The website for the government of Jamaica, mm. just go with it. Go with the it. The retreat's yeah. worth it. If it asks you for your social, do not give it. We don't need it. We don't need that. I'm yeah, pretty sure. We're, we're not worried about that. But so. you should try anyway. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, hey, we're here with somebody today that's, uh, that has been a part of the Respond Worship Retreat for, for many years and in different ways. Uh, you want to introduce yourself, person that is sitting here in the room with us? Yeah, I'm uh, Matt Stafford. Hey, it's Matt Stafford. Woo. Yeah, and I'm with my good friends, uh, Ryan and Jeremiah. Good friends. <laughs> good friends, yes. <laughs> was, that a, was that a tear, Ryan? That was a tear. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called a friend by Matt Stafford. <laughs> you got a friend in Matt. <laughs> well, great, yeah. So we're here with Matt Stafford this morning uh, at Ozark Christian College, actually, in their very nice podcasting studio. Yes. It's wonderful. Matt, how are you related to Ozark Christian College? Uh, I'm a graduate of this institution back in the 80s, attended here for six long and wonderful years. Uh, and then I came back in 2004 to teach. So this is my 17th year of teaching at Ozark. 
for the first 12 years back, I directed a worship team called uh, Frontline, of which Ryan was a part, mm-hmm. and uh, had a blast doing that. Traveled all over the country in uh, like hundreds of churches and got a pretty good feel for uh, worship in the church uh, these days, as well as the opportunity to uh, to lead, mentor, and teach college students over that period of time. Then the last uh, five years, I've been uh, leading the worship and creative arts department and uh, particularly in moving into areas of uh, creative arts, um, audio, video, graphic design, um, visual aspects of worship, and uh, started a creative arts academy five years ago Mm -hmm. um, along the same lines of that to uh, just um, expand the reach of the college and expand our instruction into, uh, you know, areas beyond uh, music uh, and worship. Yeah. Speak a little bit more into that. So our listeners kind of know more about what the creative creative arts Academy is and, um, who it's for. And yeah, we started the creative arts Academy in 2017 and we invite high school students to come and spend a week at OCC. And we have 12 different tracks that they could, uh, they can select from, uh, music, photography, video, writing, drama, uh, public speaking, um, songwriting. Um, so lots of options there. They come and they spend 20 hours in those specific tracks, uh, getting training, getting experience and actually creating things so that our goal is by the end of the week that every student comes away with something that they have created an artifact that, uh, that they've made that week. Uh, and we also, uh, foster community. So these are kids that come together and they find, Oh, there's other kids that are just like me. They love the same things. And so friendships are formed and uh, collaboration happens. Uh, and hopefully we inspire them to uh, make this a habit, you know, year, year round to be involved in creative pursuits and uh, to serve the church in that capacity, uh, whether that's in a Sunday you know, worship service or whether it's just, uh, you know, in general, creating art, creating culture. Yeah, I've been a part of it, I think, every year since it started. And I deeply love it. I remember. Ed, so I've been the private drum instructor. If he if Matt didn't mention, there are a ton of tracks, but two of the not main ones, but two of the ones that are pretty well attended because churches definitely have a place for these kind of people are the vocalist and instrumentalist tracks. So you're mm-hmm. putting a band, <clears throat> you rehearse, um, worship songs as a band, but also, um, work with a private instructor. So I was a private drum instructor for most of the years I did it. Um, and every year I tell every one of my students, I wish this existed when I was in high school, this is exactly what I was looking for and couldn't find unless it was like Lincoln Brewster's Nashville camp for cool people. Yeah. And I wasn't cool <laughs> enough to get it or whatever. So yeah, yeah. I love and, it. And, and it's, it's a fairly uh, inexpensive camp as well. If you look at other arts camps, uh, we're usually less than half the cost of an arts camp because it is underwritten by the college because we believe yeah. in the mission mm-hmm. of this. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've been a part of it for quite a while as well. Fortunately, don't get to be there this summer, but uh, I'll be in Uganda. So I guess that's a, an okay thing to do in a different for, creative so. arts camp. Yeah, yeah. Is that true? I just uh, made well, that up. No, no, <laughs> not this time around, but um, I will be experiencing the creativity of um, those in Ntembe and uh, yeah, it's gonna be great. I'm, gonna, cool. I'm, I'm excited for that opportunity, uh, but this isn't about me and what I'm doing this summer. I just, this is about the other two people in this yeah, room and exactly. what we're doing this yep. summer. Mm-hmm. So leave me so, out of it. Yeah, <laughs> we will. <laughs> my, uh, my favorite question to ask people is what do you love? 
What do I love? Well, Jesus mm-hmm. and my family. And uh, I would think, you know, just looking back at my life, probably I love learning. Mm-hmm. I, I've been in a college setting for all but three years of my life. I was in a church for three and a half years. Other than that, I've been in a college either as a student or as a campus pastor or as a teacher. So I love learning. And uh, I suppose the other half of that, I love teaching. Um, I love uh seeing students uh, grow, become successful. I mean, that's the most gratifying thing to look back, particularly now that I've been in ministry for over 30 years is to see alumni who are, who are thriving, who have, uh, you know, healthy families and ministries. And just to know that I was a little part of that is um, super gratifying. Mm-hmm. So, so that's probably what I love the most. Yeah. Well, and to go with that, I mean, one of the classes you teach here is the Psalms. And mm-hmm. so we thought you'd be the perfect guest to dive into this next chapter with us. Um, the worship pastor is the worship pastor as prayer leader. Yeah. And so I guess we can go ahead and, and dive into that or do yeah. we want to go into a resource? Nah, let's you know? just jump okay. in. All right. Let's, let's jump in. Okay. Um, so this whole chapter is super, super interesting. It starts with a conversation um, uh, between the author who's a worship leader and a, and a troubled congregation member. Um, who is really worried that there wasn't enough prayer or real prayer or something like that in their services. And he's really beating them, beating himself up. Just like what kind of deadbeat worship minister wouldn't <laughs> like make time for prayer and worship services. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the big push of this chapter is to broaden what we think of as prayer, mm-hmm. what we think of as good prayer, what like checks the box for, for lack of a better term of, of prayer and the goal of prayer in our services. Um, um, the chapter starts with this quote, whoever sings prays twice, uh, attributed to Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century. Um, this is going to lead into a claim he's going to make about, uh, prayer and singing in church, which is that they're the same or can be the same. He, he, uh, says at the beginning of page 60, um, I thought prayer was talking to God. Then as I grew older, I realized that prayer was talking with God. And so if the goal of the services is not to just offer something to God, offer the right amount of the right kinds of things that he approves of, but actually to be with and communicate with and interact with God, then singing is a, is, is a part of that. Mm -hmm. It's, it's Mm kind of what this quote, could be saying is uh, singing is prayerful or can be prayerful, but does something uh, maybe engages you on a deeper level with prayer than just being led in spoken prayer by, by an individual. Anyway, it just attributes a lot of power to singing. Well, he, he also talks about in the beginning there, like a typical posture of prayer in the early centuries would have been, you know, your, your eyes lifted up to the heavens and your hands held high, you know, and now today it's more bow your head, um, just be kind of enclosed and just, you know, this is your own personal little, little hole of prayer. I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a, a big point. So he, he tries to base this off of, um, he's trying to juxtapose prayer today, bow your head, close your eyes with prayer in the third or fourth century, 
I think fourth century. So the three hundreds, um, how Christians were doing it then that's 300 years after Jesus was born. Um, at least he makes that comparison, but I think he could go even deeper. Matt, can you talk a little bit about postures of prayer and worship in the Psalms and the Testament in general, if you want to go outside of that. Yeah. And the question that kind of came to mind when I was reading that too, which goes along with this is, you know, why has our posture become so internal and closed over the years? I mean, is there a common trend that we've seen that has kind of led us that way? Yeah. I, I don't have any specific, you know, history that I know of when it comes to that posture of prayer. My assumption is it's probably more pragmatic Mm -hmm. that it has something to do with uh, parents wanting to keep their children quiet. And so let's (laughs) teach them at an early age to fold your hands, bow your head, Mm -hmm. close your eyes to focus. So that probably has a practical um, uh, reason behind it. Probably also just the whole, um, you know, of Christianity faith being very personal and individualized. Uh, and whenever that began to take place, you know, Jesus as my personal savior, that, that kind of language Mm -hmm. that, uh, I'm going to assume here was like 60s, 70s. That's the kind of language I, I grew up with at that time. So I think that's probably where that came from, because if you look at the old Testament, uh, new Testament, you find plenty of examples of yes, hands lifted of clapping of exuberance of celebration standing, uh, by far the most common posture. In fact, I don't even think there's a reference to sitting, hmm. uh, in worship. You know, it's, it was, just, yeah. it was always standing, uh, as a, as a show of reverence, uh, and respect. So, um, that's what I would say. And I think what, what I go to often is I think about the, in the book of Acts, the very first recorded written recorded worship service was in Acts chapter four. And it says that they gathered together, the church gathered together. This is after uh, Peter and John have been arrested and before the Sanhedrin, and then they're sent out and they're told not to preach anymore. The church gathers to worship at that moment. And it says that they lifted their voices together in prayer. And then it quotes the second Psalm. So I assume from that, that their praying together was the recitation of the second Psalm. And then the working through of the application of that Psalm to Jesus as the, uh, as the Messiah in that Psalm, the anointed one. Um, so their posture would have been standing and praying, saying together these ancient words. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to think which track I want to go down. Okay, first track, talking about uh, eyes closed, head bowed, hands folded. Um, this kind of prayer practice, I'm going to assume, yeah, it's probably pragmatic. It's probably like parents and kids and whatever, and don't make noise in church, so you close your eyes and whatever. Um, this wouldn't have made any sense in any church all the way up through the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation. Um, because up to that point, there was the, in 1093, there was the split between the Roman Catholic, kind of the Western church and the Eastern Orthodox, kind of the Eastern church. Um, but from the beginning of churches having buildings in the, after 313 with Constantine, where it was fine to legal to be a Christian you didn't have to hide anymore from that point, at least through the Protestant Reformation, your walls, your ceilings, your architecture, your, all of your worship furniture was designed to be looked at and tell the gospel story. So closing your eyes for prayer wouldn't have made a lot of sense. I, I, uh, it was designed to even look up. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Part of the Protestant <laughs> Reformation was why are we still leading worship in Latin? Mm-hmm. Nobody can understand it, but to get around that, they would do a few things. One, they'd like print little prayer books that you can just like 
that's your play toy while church is going on and you don't understand Latin because you're German. Like, like you just pray on your own while they're doing the service. But the other thing is, like I said, the architecture, all the icons and, and kind of pictorial stories, um, of the story of the gospel on the walls. You just, you just like let your mind wander into these different stories while somebody else was doing the service in a language you didn't understand. So closing your eyes, bowing your head, folding your hands, wouldn't have made a lot of sense. The only way you interact with the service is looking and, Mm -hmm. and listening to sounds, but not words, right. Engaging your senses, singing songs in a language you don't understand on top of that. One of the coolest things I read, I may have said this on the podcast before, but um, in a book called uh, A Brief History of Christian Worship by James F. White, he said seating wasn't a common infrastructure piece in churches until the 1100s. They would just stand in a mob and move over to wherever the service like whatever was the focal point of the service in that moment. So in a, in a high church, in a Catholic church, I went to in Joplin one time, there were like two or three podiums, one for the preaching and that was all the way on the right and the lowest and one for reading most of the scripture higher than the preaching one on the left. And the center one was the highest and is just for the reading of the gospels. They would just get up and move to those podiums so they could hear them just stand there in a mob and then kneel at different times and, and, whatever at different times. So, so this whole like sitting is an appropriate posture for worship didn't even cross people's minds. Probably. I mean, maybe some, some older folks who had bad knees or something, but like (laughs) didn't cross their minds as like a, like a culturally acceptable, everybody sits thing for a long, long, Mm -hmm. long, long, long time. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then the, biblical foundations of worship class I took with Danelle at Lincoln. She, she said the same thing about posture. She said, um, at least in the, in the era of King David and, and beyond, like there's no real, like sitting isn't a biblical worship posture, but standing with hands raised, laying flat on your face, prostrate, (laughs) like those are acceptable patterns. Mm, Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, there were no there were no chairs in the temple, uh, in, the, in the courts or anything. It was always standing. You think of uh, Nehemiah chapter eight, that great worship service, and the restoration of the temple, where it says that people literally stood for hours listening to the reading of the law. So, yeah, standing is definitely by you know. If the, they were the good Baptists, posture. they would have stood there with their hands in their pockets uh, <laughs> for hours. I'm kidding. That was a terrible joke. No, they were they were weeping and both weeping and celebrating. Yeah. Same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I even think of the life of Jesus and just how mobs of people would follow him everywhere to hear him yeah. preach in different areas. It's kind of a similar concept, you know, just collectively gathered in by the sea, by, uh, in the temples, you know, he, they would just be following him to, to hear him in different settings. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, obviously those different settings would have different connotations to what he's talking about too. So it's, it's, uh, the lack of sitting is two things. One showing how holistic their worship and interaction with Jesus and different people was, um, which you can see in a high church today. They don't only sit and then stand for the last song or stand for whatever they're sitting and standing and kneeling and sitting and standing and kneeling. And just like this constant rotation Mm -hmm. of body posture. So their whole body's engaged in it, but it's also a, a facet of a religion that didn't have a location 
for a long time. You met in people's houses, you met outdoors, you met wherever, but you didn't meet in a church building because mm-hmm. you were just a weird religious sect for 300 years. Like you couldn't have a church building. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I wonder if the culture of our building shifts over time have kind of brought us more internal as well. Cause you know, like you were saying with the high church, yeah. you know, we're constantly looking up or admiring the beauty that's around us in the building, but now we're in warehouses <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with stadium seating, you know, and all focused towards, um, you know, these light shows on stage and which I think that's our answer to, to poor worship architecture mm-hmm. is we're going to build into our architecture, um, lights and stage designs and whatever, to still direct you mm-hmm. like those other things would, but, but direct you to a location by the house lights going down and the stage lights going up, right. um, direct you to people being examples of, um, a, a good attempt at being an honest, wholehearted worshiper rather than stained glass of a saint mm-hmm. who was a good worshiper. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, the first time I read this chapter, one of the most convicting things, though, um, was this, this quote I'm going to read from page 1661. Um, Zach Hicks said that the worship service is, is the central training ground and vocabulary builder for a Christian's prayers throughout the week. We're not only facilitating prayers on Sundays, we're training Christians to pray Monday through Saturday. I know in, in my own experience as a pastor um, and as a pastor in the Midwest, where cultural Christianity is a pretty rampant thing. What I mean by that is like, like you can grow up and have learned about Jesus and have learned a bunch of stories from the old Testament in Sunday school, um, and be deeply involved in, in, uh, and familiar with Christian language, but your life is not necessarily devoted to that. That's yeah. maybe a, a 30th of your week and your priorities and whatever. And a bigger percentage of that is your kids sports and getting a promotion at work and, um, whatever. And you, and you run to, you attend church, but maybe Christianity isn't a very important thing in your life, but being a person who attends church is. And so there are plenty of people, um, who I've been a pastor over. I mean, that is like, I'm there in my care their spiritual health is in my care along with some other people. And they, they show up to church and that may be the only time they pray in the whole week. Mm -hmm. So whatever language I give them from our songs, from our sermons, from our prayers in between different elements, from our prayer prompts and times of extended prayer from our scripture readings, that's going to be the language they know Mm -hmm. and the training ground they have in prayer that will probably be the only catalyst for prayer other than a catastrophe. Right. Which, which makes them feel like they, they need something quick. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, you teach a lot of foundations classes for worship at the school. Um, what are some things that you teach your students as far as preparing for that in the church? Um, as far as the, the songs that we choose or the, the words that we're using to put on, you know, the hearts and minds of people as they leave our, Mm -hmm. our churches each week. Yeah, it's important to be founded in uh, in the Bible and uh, teaching biblical prayers. And I've I've always been struck by uh, Jesus when he was asked by his disciples, you know, teach us to pray 
Um, and Jesus replied, not with a you know PowerPoint, here's three points on how to pray. Here's a 20 minute sermon on prayer. He said, when you pray, say our father who art in heaven, he taught them the, the very words of prayer. And so, you know, we teach by example and certainly songs are uh, maybe the most powerful prayers that we can teach because they stick with us. And I know we've all had this experience where uh, we, we can't remember the three points of the sermon, you know, two hours after it's been preached, but we're still humming that song or even later in the week, uh, the words are coming to mind. And so worship leaders have a, just a powerful responsibility to teach people the words of prayer that they're going to take with them for the rest of the week and the rest of their lives. It's the words of songs that are going to come to mind, uh, you know, in the hospital rooms and uh, in, in moments of trial, probably not the words or the, you know, a three point outline from a sermon. Um, so we have a, you know, tremendous responsibility to teach the words yeah. that we speak to God. Mm-hmm. And we, we talked about this in previous episodes, uh, potentially, uh, about the relationship with the senior pastor and how important that is for the worship leader. Um, especially in this context, you know, knowing what they're going to be preaching about ahead of time so that you can use the words of your songs to really emphasize the driving points for their sermons. Mm -hmm. Um, because I mean that, like you said, people are going to memorize or remember the words of the songs more than they probably are the points. So if we're emphasizing those points through music, then they are holistically getting what we're trying to to communicate that weekend. Um, and then hopefully, you know, allowing that to carry with them throughout the rest of the week as well. Yeah. It, um, I feel like prayer, I've, I've heard a lot of statements on prayer, a lot of idioms and whatever. I remember Josh Huckabee said a lot of times, um, prayer is the barometer of our anticipation. Mm. So how much are you anticipating, um, what God is going to do next, how much you're anticipating Jesus showing up again and, and uh, completing his vision for the world and, and wiping away all sickness and death and whatever. How, how much are you anticipating those things? We'll know how much you are by your prayer. Um, and I've heard a lot of statements like that, that, that just make me think prayer is the actualization of our faith. Prayer is the activation of our faith um, that, that, even if, even if God is calling us in a certain moment to, um, tell somebody about him and tell somebody about the gospel or something that it, in line at a restaurant or whatever, like that's still an action based in prayer that, that if, if prayer is a conversation between you and God, then even his nudging to you is an act of prayer. If you relating to God and, and, and communicating with him. And, and so prayer is so valuable and so important, so necessary. It, uh, it, I feel like Zach Hicks really hits it on the head when he says, um, so while God alone moves hearts in sincere prayer, this after he's making a point that we can't change people's hearts. Um, just like Exodus with, uh, God and Pharaoh, Pharaoh can change his own heart. God can change his heart, but Moses can't do anything to change his heart by saying, let my people go. Um, so while God alone moves hearts in sincere prayer, a worship pastor continually cultivates a longing to see it happen. We want our worship services to be filled with real prayer. We ache for it to happen and we plead with God to make it. So um, this kind of prayer is, I feel like what our worship gatherings should be aimed at. Like, like how do you know if you won this week? Um, we talked about this a little bit in doxological philosopher um, making a, a uh, 
that's like chapter three or something. Um, but making a, a, a worship philosophy um, that kind of answers the question, how are we going to do what, what we're going to do? And how do we know if this Sunday was a win? And I feel like prayer along with all the other idioms you could say about prayer, prayer is like the, the goal, the benchmark. Was this a prayerful Sunday? Then it was a good Sunday. Then we won. Then we did a good job. Yeah, one of my professors, uh, Don DeWell, used to say that uh, prayer is the world. Prayer is where the world that we live in meets the world that we believe in. And so if you have that experience on a, in a worship service where those two worlds come together, the world we believe in, the world that we live in when they meet, uh, then that is a win. You've accomplished that. Um, and what happens in, when those two worlds collide is transformation uh, because you are face-to-face with ultimate reality. You know, there's just a lot of lies, fantasy that, uh, that we believe in in this world. And when we meet the real world in worship, um, our fantasies are confronted and shattered and we're aligned with reality. And uh, that's, that's the power of worship and prayer. Mm. When heaven meets earth, like a sloppy wet kiss. Mm. <clears throat> I prefer unforeseen, personally. Well, sloppy wet, I think, makes, makes better context with that with that quote. It there. does, <laughs> but also, you don't want that. I, I don't know. Oh, dear. <laughs> Man, I just really love this chapter. I, I feel like uh, the conversation about prayer and, and corporate worship and all that and singing is super valuable. It, um, we're not plugging. This isn't the plug this week, but I'm going to plug this separately. Uh, there's a book by a guy named Sky Jatani. Um, just speak that into, into Google text to speech to text and see if it gets it right. Um, but it's a book called with, hopefully you can spell that. Um, it's called reimagining the way we relate to God. And his whole point is this. And I feel like Christians have been making this point for a long time. Um, but without thinking about it beforehand, without being really careful about it, we, we tend to think that, um, we need to relate to God or, or get stuff from God or be over God or be um, under God or all these different uh, uh, words that he uses. But he says that with this, like the biblical goal that like um, being with God is where um, the fruit is grown in our lives, where we can find the fruit of the spirit because um, we're attached to the vine where um, God's abiding presence makes sense of the rest of it of, um, our call as Christians of our, of, uh, the boldness of, of, uh, the early Christians and acts and all that, like it all stems from abiding and being with God rather than, um, God needing something from you rather than, um, God needing to give something to you than all these different ways we can relate to God. But yeah, being with God is the central thing anyway, but that's not our plug this week, but you should get it anyway and read it. It's a really good book. I like the speechwriter illustration a lot that yeah. he talks about, about how um, truly being intentional with every word that we use as though the words that we are putting in the mouth of others is important because it is, right? Um, so, yeah, even with the songs that we choose, I mean, we even talked about that. But um, I guess a question for you, Matt, uh, since we, we do have you here and we, we want to have your input as much as possible, um, do you, I guess in maybe your experiences with leading worship, do you spend a lot of intentional time beforehand planning your prayers, writing out things that you're going to say, 
Um, do you teach this to the students as something that's pivotal that you should be doing? Um, cause I know for me personally, like, you know, getting caught up in, in the hustle and bustle of life, you know, we don't really have a whole lot of time. I, I don't feel like I always have a whole lot of time to plan specifically like that. Um, and so a lot of my planning goes more into making sure that the songs that we're doing is going to, to resonate well with the, with the message. Um, and I do include, include and incorporate, prayers here and there, but I don't feel like I'm as intentional as I should be. Um, but anyway, uh, aside mm-hmm. from all that, I guess I just like some of your input on, on yeah. the importance of that and maybe what you've done in the past that could be beneficial for our listeners. Well, for as long as I can remember leading worship, I have always started with scripture and it may just be because, um, I'm not very creative and to come up with things on my own. So I just go to, Oh, here's a book uh, in the Bible. It's got 150 prayers. Let's just pray those. (laughs) And, and that's seriously, I mean, 30, 40 years ago when I started doing this in college ministry, that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I would go to a Psalm and build the service around that. I would uh, see what songs were inspired by that song. I would uh, think what, you know, what is the structure of the Psalm? and and then pattern the worship after that. Um, so I've always done that. I've always taught that as a as a default is to start with the scripture. And, um, and certainly, yeah, for me, because by nature, I'm not an extrovert. I just don't spontaneously think of funny and, and, and cute things to say. So I have to, I have to plan ahead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I would say nearly, you know, 95% of the time, anything I say, uh, from the stage, I've already practiced it. I've already thought it through and I've said it in various uh, formats and I've, you know, I've, yeah, I've practiced it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's part of just my nature uh, as a, as a, someone who likes to prepare and not be surprised by things. So, uh, that's certainly true. And I found the, another thing that I've engaged in is the discipline of writing. Uh, and I started a project two years ago to write, um, every day. Um, and I, I take two verses of the Psalms and, uh, reflect on those. So usually it winds up being, you know, I don't know, 200 words a day that I'm writing about each verse of the Psalm. So, um, so then that discipline of writing of, cause, cause writing forces us to think very clearly and specifically writing can be very specific. And so, um, I would encourage that in worship leaders to, to write what you're going to say, because it forces you to be careful yeah. uh, and thoughtful about mm-hmm. what you say. Mm. Yeah. it's a good word. I, didn't find as much. Um, I didn't think the speechwriter thing was as cool until you just said it. I feel like I didn't get it until you said it <laughs> out loud. I was like, speechwriter. Oh, cool. Putting Probably words in I, God's I've mouth, just, but loved, I didn't get it. Love to write. So it just made, it made sense in my mind. Click I, like, and yeah, I love to being, speech. And so <laughs> we know that. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> but I, I feel like I didn't get it until you said it out loud. And then it makes a lot of sense. This is kind of the the conversation we're going to come back to in the next episode, probably with um, the theological dietitian chapter. It's, it's a little bit of the same thing where this is uh, the training ground, the vocabulary builder for Christians prayers throughout the week. Um, he makes a point in the next chapter. I don't want to spoil it. So if you're worried about spoilers, mute it right now for about 10 seconds. Uh, in the next chapter, he says that um, what we what ideas we put forward and things we validate are going to be a lot of what they think about God. Um, how they think God is, is going to be reflected in what we're saying about God. Um, and I feel like this speechwriter thing applies to both that the words we sing every Sunday, just like a speechwriter are words that they didn't necessarily think of 
10 seconds ago, but they're now saying and identifying with and believing. Right. And, and there's a, a big uh, responsibility on us mm-hmm. to be careful with that, to be um, protective of that and intentional with that. Yeah. I don't know if you ever experienced this as a student here at other Christian college, Ryan, um, or even you, Matt, where, you know, we had a, an exegetical do and yeah, me, I'm a very big procrastinator and I like to do things last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would write and write and write and write and write all night long, turn it in and somehow get a really good grade on the paper and go back through and read my paper and be like, Oh, that is kind of good what I said, but I don't, I don't remember most of yeah. what I said, you know? And so sometimes I've almost considered that almost as like the divine inspiration, you know, like I'm, I'm not, and they might be pushing it too much, but I don't know. I, we are going to add one of those papers to the end of the Bible before the end of this podcast. I, no, no. Uh, Revelation says specifically not to do that. So we're, we're not going to do that, but it doesn't say that in the Jeremiah Jones version. Okay. Sorry. Uh, but with that, there is something to that where, uh, you know, as long as we're sitting down and we're being intentional with something specifically, cause you know, within an exegetical, you have a specific set of text or, one specific portion of text, a pericope, if you will, um, to a pericope, a pericope, right. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, that you are investing so much time and energy into to try to extract as much truth as possible from it. Um, and so, you know, just that intentionality, it, it, there's, there's something to that. I think God can really guide your, your writing and your, and your thoughts when you're that invested in his word specifically. So, yeah, something I like about writing versus just speaking and hoping that what you're saying is right is you're both (laughs) like, you're both the speaker and the fact checker. You like write your sentence out and you're like, is that even true? Did Mm -hmm, I say that right? mm -hmm, Are these mm -hmm. the best words? Yeah. And, and hopefully as, as you do that, you like deliver the best possible, the most true possible thing you could, Mm -hmm. you deliver exactly what you meant. And, um, That's, that's kind of the, when we're singing songs, at least in my context, we don't write any of our own songs ever just because that's not a skill I've built up. That's not a muscle I've worked. And so a lot of it is I am the, I'm the fact checker Mm -hmm. for speeches coming in. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm determining, is this pre written thing going to be good for our church? Good for our people, good for their own faith journey. Um, is and, anything in here going to be misleading for people in our context? Is and it's anything, not just us as the fact checker though. Yeah. Our congregations are fact checkers as well. I know that <laughs> from <laughs> personal experience. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a few of those moments where somebody comes up and it's like, I don't think that's biblical. And I'm like, I can usually argue my way out of anything. That's not a good proof that I was right. But <laughs> <laughs> is there a Snopes for, the Bible. I mean, I guess the Bible would be that, but I mean, is there like a, like a Christian Snopes? Cause if not, I might've just thought of the most yeah. innovative thing yeah, I could think of right that. now in this moment. Are you talking yeah. about fact checking? Yeah. Like, songs? like a, or like a songs or for like theological just ideas, theological uh-huh. ideas. Like, like Ryan was saying, you know, type something out. Is that really true? Just go to Christian Snopes and mm-hmm. type it in and find out if it's mm. true. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know. I feel like you'd have to call it like Bereans or something. Yeah. We're more noble than whoever wrote this thing in the first yeah. place. But we're also in a culture that believes that anything is truth. So true or truth is relative 
in some sense. I don't believe case. that's true. Yeah, well. Or do I? <laughs> <laughs> what is truth? Is Snopes even truth? Uh, anyway, okay. Yeah, I like the speechwriter illustration as well because of um, the responsibility that you have as a, as a worship leader to give people the words of prayer. And if you think about it, you sing maybe four or five songs a week. Um, you're going to repeat many of those throughout the year that in the course of a year, you might have, I don't know, 40, 50, maybe songs in the canon of the church mm-hmm. and over a whole year's time. That's not a lot of words. Uh, so it's very important. So sometimes I've, I've been in a situation where I've been in a church and I'm like, you know, that was a good song, but I'm not sure it was really worthy of mm-hmm. the time that we invested in preparing an arrangement and the music and, and teaching it over several weeks and getting it into people's heads. And it's like, yeah, it's okay. But it, we, we have a limited amount of time. Yeah. Are there songs that are more worthy? Mm-hmm. I think there are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also butt up against the fact that there's just so much new music coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so hard to determine what is what is right for our services anymore, it seems like. I mean, obviously there's the good uh the oldies, you know. You got you got your hymns. Those are great. Yeah. Those always always ring loud and true. Your oldies like O Come O Come Emmanuel yeah, from like exactly. I think also the fourth century or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, yeah, today there's just so much music. I, I get overwhelmed quickly trying to plan anymore. And, you know, there's people from my team constantly that are like, we should try this song. We should try this song. And it's like, well, we already kind of do a song that presents that similar message, but I think a little bit better. Um, yeah. You know, there's so, yeah, it's, it's a, being a worship pastor is difficult sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think to refine this conversation for this week though, um, the speech writer idea I think is a little more on the affective side on the emotional, um, which again, I feel like every chapter the Zach Hicks writes, there's a footnote in there that says, we'll talk about this more in chapter 13, the emotional (laughs) shepherd. And I'm like, just get there already. Should have put it like eight chapters earlier. Um, cause I just love that chapter so much, but I love that he footnotes his, (laughs) his own book. book. Um, just wait, I'll talk about it later. It gets better. No, it's, it's already great. Um, but I feel like the point he's trying to make in this section, at least, and he'll, I hope he'll make the same point in the next chapter. I don't remember with the speechwriter, but the point in this one is like, um, less like, are they, uh, are they saying right stuff when they're reciting the words that you wrote or that you chose for them? And it's more, are they like being led through, um, things that are going to form them into more true believer. I, he, he says something somewhere like, um, these things stir up their affections that they already have, but they're just more stirred up in this moment because of what you did. Um, that like they're brought to a more prayerful attitude as they're singing this because of words that you wrote or somebody else wrote and you chose, um, that like their, their attitude, their demeanor, their submissiveness to God, um, how they're relating to this God in this, to God in this moment is, is, uh, being affected in a true and good and helpful way because of the speech that you wrote for them or that you chose for them. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of pastoral responsibility in there. Are you just like a doctor? Are you looking out for their best interest in this moment? Or is the, the medicine for lack of a better word, effective right now? Is it actually making the, like the changes in their, in their being that you're hoping it'll make? I feel like that's the the speech writer idea that he's going at in this one. Yeah. Not growing up in the church. I always thought it was interesting singing songs that other people wrote. Yeah. You know, like 
because I most of my music has been it, prior to the church has been me and bands creating on our own music and own lyrics and stuff. Yeah. You know? So coming into a context where I'm learning other people's music to perform, for lack of a better word, you know, each week, uh, it was always interesting to me. But thinking through this chapter, I mean, we are essentially singing the prayers of other people. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting concept to think about. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, for most of church history, the church worship consisted of singing the Psalms, which were the prayers of other people right. up until really, I mean, the time of Isaac, Isaac Watts, the father of uh, English hymnody, where he was a revolutionary um, in, in translating the Psalms into, into prayers that focused on, on Jesus, putting them into, um, you know, po- English poetry, essentially. Yeah. Uh, it was a radical thing. You know, uh, I, I love the story of Isaac Watts because he was a teenager in church when he was just bored to tears. He was like, <laughs> dad, can we sing something different in church? You know, instead of this, the Psalms, you know, week after week, same songs. Uh, and the dad said, his dad said, well, just, you know, write your own then. And so he did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he, he took the entire Psalter and uh, wrote it into, uh, into mo- our modern, what we, you know, modern hymns essentially of, you know, that have, that have endured even joy to the world was mm-hmm. one of those hymns. Psalm, yeah. uh, Psalm 98, he, he translated it, which is a very broad word. I use the word translation. He, you know, re- was it from another it. language or did he Eugene Peterson, the message it? Yeah, it was from English, you know, English, okay. English. Well, I mean, you know, he was a scholar of you know, Greek and Hebrew as well. Um, but uh, it, it, I'd say translation because it, it wasn't a, you know, any, anything close to literal translation. But he took the, the, yeah. the, the concept of that Psalm 98 uh, as a, you know, joy to the world, the Lord has come, uh, God coming to judge. And he interpreted that as this is Jesus mm-hmm. coming to judge really about the second coming was the, the, the gist of yeah. that, of Psalm of that Psalm. Uh, we use it as his first coming, but uh, definitely if you think about it, it's, it's, it's a second coming. Yeah. When yeah. the curse is ended and um, the judgment is done. So yeah. How many times it. does Jesus recite the Psalms? Do you know that count? Mm. I think it's more than twice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least. Um, yeah, I mean there there are over fifty very specific quotations of the Psalms in the New Testament okay. in general. Uh, yeah, when it comes to the Gospels, yeah, there are many many times he quotes the Psalms. I'm thinking just offhand, you know, Psalm one ten uh, is one. Um, My house shall be a house of prayer is another. Oh, Psalm yeah. sixty nine, of course, from the cross. Um, Psalm mm-hmm. twenty two, uh, multiple parts of that as well as Psalm sixty nine from the cross. And on top That's of that, that, he was a good Jew. And so that meant that um, every time he came to Jerusalem for uh, different feast uh, feast days and feast, I say days, but I mean sometimes they're weeks and whatever, um, he would recite, I'm looking at you, seeing if you're going to give me an A or an F on this. Uh, he would recite the Hillel yeah. Psalms thir- 113 through 118. Yes. Oh, I got it right. Yeah, you anyway. got it. So like in his life, of course he's reciting a ton right, more right. Um, like even yep. uh, him as a teenager in the temple. I don't know if it's a teenager, yeah. but him as mm-hmm. a boy in the temple and, and um, teaching and uh, being a big part of like the scriptures in that place and mm-hmm. um, knowing the scriptures to memory well enough that he could fight off the temptations of the devil in the desert. Matthew th- three, four, four, cause it's right after it's baptism mm-hmm. and three. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and like all those, all those times show that like, even if he's only quoted the Psalms 20 times in the gospels or less that like, he's definitely reciting them and murmuring them and, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I mean, the reason yeah. I bring it up yes. is because of Tim Keller's devotional. It's, it's called the songs of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I always yeah. thought that that was, was yeah. beautiful. And I, I just took my church through that whole entire um, book this year. And so, well, the book of Psalms, but through his uh, sectioning out of it and yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really, really beneficial, but just to, to understand the Psalms as the songs of Jesus has been yeah. eye opening for me. Yeah, when we think about Jesus' prayer life, uh, we think about the time he spent the night in prayer as he uh, was selecting his disciples. You know, what did he pray? Did he did he just think about these guys and you know kind of talk to God about each one of them? Uh, did he did he pray the Psalms in that context? Mm-hmm. Were there Psalms that uh, came to his mind that he took the words of? And I I think of you know G- probably Jesus' most intense time of prayer was in the garden, certainly, where he prayed for hours, mm-hmm. you know, long enough for the disciples to you know join him for a while and then fall asleep, and then he wakes him up and you know, repeat. Uh, and if for several hours, Jesus is praying and, and, uh, again, I have no proof of this, but my assumption is that he was praying the Psalms. Mm. And as I read the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of lament, uh, it's, it's not too hard to, to imagine Jesus praying this Psalm in the garden. Mm. You know, Psalm 88, for example, is one of the, you know, darkest, um, Psalms. And he just talks about, you know, it's a time of darkness. It's, it's, it's nighttime for my soul. Um, I have no friends. My friends have abandoned me. Well, he's got disciples that have fallen asleep in this moment. So he could have been praying Psalm, uh, 98, um, or 88 rather. I, I'm convinced, uh, he was praying Psalm 16 in the garden, uh, because, uh, it, it ends with the words of, uh, you know, you will not abandon me to Sheol. Uh, I'll be seated at your right hand with eternal pleasure. So, and this is the text then that Peter uses on the day of Pentecost. So Peter in the garden, hearing Jesus pray. So, uh, you might do that. Just, just take Psalm 16 and pray it as if, uh, if Jesus, you know, you were Jesus in the garden and see how that, see how well that fits. And you can do that for any number of Psalms as well. As you read the Psalms, think about how, when and how would Jesus have prayed these songs? Because, yeah. because, uh, you're, you're right as a Jew, he would have known, um, all of these Psalms, just as we know the Lord's prayer, for mm-hmm. example, the, the Jewish people were taught these prayers. They prayed them week after week in the synagogue. Yeah. I, um, that's something that I've come to, and I took Psalms with you. I took it over the summer while interning at a church. So I'm not sure I absorbed everything I could have possibly absorbed from that. Um, and I regret that a little bit, but, um, that's something that I've really noticed and, and continued to grow an understanding about with the Psalms is, um, the depth and the breadth of emotion in the Psalms and how that relates to, people and who people should be. So I, um, I was at a church once where I, uh, I was serving in a church where I heard the, the, their mission of what happens on a Sunday morning is, um, or their strategy. They said, uh, people's lives are already filled with so much hurt and brokenness and pain and whatever. And we don't want to add to that on a Sunday morning. So we just want to be um, happy go lucky and do all the joyful stuff and whatever. And it didn't sit right with me, but I didn't know why I, I I didn't want it to just be my opinion that I'd rather be moody and sad sometimes on a Sunday morning or, or inquisitive or whatever other emotions. Um, 
but I didn't understand why I didn't like that idea. And I think as I grew in understanding of the Psalms and, uh, on top of that, in understanding that the Psalms are the worship and prayer and song book for God's chosen people for a long time. I mean, like Mm -hmm. you said, um, the most of the history of the church in the world, that's been their songs. Um, even it was, and then, and then they got away from it sometimes. And a lot of the different restoration reformation kind of movements, um, when they say you guys are off course, we need to get back to the Bible. A lot of times that means we're going to start only singing the Psalms again, because that's the best thing to do or the whatever. And so the church has been coming back Mm -hmm. to and staying with the Psalms for a long time. And of course, before Jesus and during Jesus time, that's where God's chosen people were anyway. Like David was a big part of writing the Psalms. So from then through the rest of God's people's history, the Psalms have been a big part of it. And, um, I remember being a, a, a little, uh, worship song legalist in college and in high school being like, you can't sing no longer slaves. Cause it's allegory. And why is there so much I in all these songs and just having <laughs> these opinions that were like, I have these opinions, therefore I'm better than whatever. Um, and then you come to the Psalms and they're, like I said, the worship and prayer and song book of God's chosen people. There's a ton of I, Oh yeah. there's a ton of, uh, not Jesus is my boyfriend language, but like not, not super far off. There's a ton of like mourning and crying and lamenting. There's a ton of just like sheer joy and thankfulness and, um, tons of like all these different emotions and all these, I would feel very awkward like trying to sing a lot of those Psalms in church word for word, how they are out of whatever semi-literal translation you're using. feels like you're reading somebody's diary mm-hmm. and that as a group of people right next to like your weird uncle is just kind of, just kind of weird. But what it does for a group of people, what it does for individuals is like help orient your heart and your, and your soul and your posture towards God in, um, in, in every human emotion. Um, and it's just really cool, but also it's mostly cool cause it's different from how I feel like I grew up singing in church and worshiping in church. Um, yeah. And those norms for me, it's different. Yeah. There, there's relatively little lamenting in modern worship songs relatively there's very little uh and and i don't know i struggle with this because uh, like you said there are a lot of laments in the psalms but they're also very personal there are only a handful of communal laments it's mostly individual laments um you don't get the first communal lament until psalm 44 uh, but previous to that it's all just david um complaining and um and and I mean certainly lament is a major theme in the Psalms. Uh, I mean the more I I study and pray them, I realize that one of the key themes of the Psalms is frustration with God, disappointment with God. And God, yeah. if you are good, if you are sovereign, uh, and if um, you know you promise in the very first Psalm, blessed is the man who who keeps the covenant. You know, and I'm doing all that. God, where are you? So there's a lot of that. Yeah. So I think it's but it's hard to translate that because it's so individual. And when you come into a worship gathering gathering. Uh, not everyone's there. I mean, yeah. some people have had fantastic weeks and they're super blessed and I, I have nothing to complain about. And then there are others that are just heartbroken. So, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of the, the songs of ascent, uh, Psalm 120 through 134. 
Yeah, you got oh, it. Look at this. Man, we're acing yeah, this guy today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there was a song that came out, Highlands, Song of Ascent, um, oh, yeah. a while back that I, I don't, I don't use it congregationally. Um, just, it's very wordy and it's also, I don't, I feel like it's very much a reflective song, but it's a good song to set up what Song of Ascents are about. And, you know, in the Highlands and the heart, heartache, you know, like it's the, the mountaintop and the valley moments of life. Like that's what we experience all the time. And so um, I just, I love having a song like that, that can really just teach, you know, teach mm -hmm. about, um, yeah. different ways to pray and that we have, you know, 15 Psalms that we can use to pray in those moments as well. Yeah. We're going to get to it more in, um, oh, there's a chapter for everything in this book. Honestly, I think it's like the worship pastor is mortician or something, or one of those where, where he talks about, um, how valuable lament is in church um, and, and how little there is. He even says like for my church uh, at, at whatever time he was a pastor at this church that, uh, that didn't have any lament in their, in their diet, in their normal regular routine. He introduced Lord, I need you as like a, as a, as a like junior lament, like it's like it's halfway mm -hmm. toward a limit, just relying mm -hmm. on God. And he was like, that's step one. And that's as many steps as we've taken so far. But that's like step one toward being, feeling allowed to limit, um, in this church with this group of people. Um, yeah. I love the bridge of that song. Teach my song to rise to you when temptation yeah. comes my way. Yeah. Like that's, that's a beautiful line. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's really good. When I cannot stand, I fall on you. Like so yeah. poetic. I love it. It, mm -hmm. Jesus, I, you're my hope and stay. What I appreciate is that it feels dried up. Like, like the person who's singing that feels lyrically dried up in the same way that I feel like an, a song of limit Psalm 42 feels. Um, it's another Psalm where it's, it's personal, but he's like, um, everybody's abandoned me. They say, where's your God when mm -hmm. my tears, and my food day and night it feels dried up, like exhausted, like, uh, like withered up. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like it does a good job identifying with that, but we don't have a lot of those songs and it feels weird to take the, the happy people into those places. But just imagine what it's like for those who mourn every week when we, when we go to the happy places, like, like there's no reason not to. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. I think it was Billy Graham that said um, when he gets up to preach, he realizes that there's a broken heart in every pew and I've tried to do the same thing when I lead worship is yeah. to, yes, I want to offer some celebration, but I also want to recognize as I look out in the congregation that there is a lot of, a lot of broken hearts. And what am I saying to them? What words yeah. am I giving them uh, to pray this week? Uh, so while we may not have a lot of songs of lament, I think certainly we don't want to avoid the Psalms of lament and we can use them in our liturgy and use these prayers and have people. I've always been a big fan of praying out loud together. You know, we have this capacity yeah. now to put the words on a screen and uh, read them, pray them together. So I'm a big fan of that would probably say that like 99% of the time I lead worship, we're going to read some scripture. It's just, it's just part of the, the plan for me. Yeah. And especially when you have like long instrumental breaks in a song, just having mm -hmm. something up there on the screen for something yeah. to read. Because uh, people engage in those moments way differently. And so just making sure that you're allowing space for people that don't necessarily like to sing, <laughs> but they can read 
and allow that yeah. to impact them. So the, uh, this chapter makes a movement from these kind of conversations toward how do I make prayer, ah, not how do I make prayer good, but how do I make like prayer more meaningful and more real and kind of revitalize our prayerful attitude and worship. Um, and he has these four points. Um, I'm just going to read them all and then we'll stop and go through them one by one if we want to. But, um, he has his four points on how to kind of revitalize, um, our prayerful attitudes in worship. He says, number one, ask God for it. Number two, cultivate a prayer filled life. Number three, investigate the meaning, the why behind your worship services, various prayer practices, and then tell your people about the meaning of those practices in worship. And then uh, lastly, fill your prayer practices with the appropriate emotion. I feel like we've been talking about that a, a good amount, the appropriate emotion. But one thing I, I think is really interesting, and I've tried to make a practice in my life, I think since I first read this book, and I didn't realize that that's why I started doing this, but but do you want to revitalize prayer? Ask God for it. What is asking God? Pray, pray for it. <laughs> it's, it's so, it feels like, like, lower than first grade Christianity. Like that should be such a simple, basic (laughs) answer. But, um, in a lot of these, uh, in a lot of different faith crises with different people that, um, I've helped step into and, and speak some wisdom into, um, even, even in like, uh, I had a person ask me, should I, they were on my worship team. Should I go into worship ministry? Do you think I'm good enough to be a worship minister? And I was like, number one, that's a terrible question. You want to go to Bible college? Maybe after after that, maybe you'll be finger quotes good enough, like job description wise, good enough. The hard skills good enough to be a worship minister. But I said, like, just ask God about it. Just pray about it. Even 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 just the prayer, like God help me help make me into a person who's a good worship leader. Mm-hmm. That's so simple. Mm-hmm. That's so easy. But at the same time, like we're convinced by our culture and the norms here that you want to be good at something. You just got to work at it. And you also have to be naturally gifted at it. Like we live in a world where God can't help you with it. Like we live in a world where God didn't help Moses speak to Pharaoh when Moses had a stutter. And he's like, I don't, I can't speak to him. I have a stutter. And God's like, who made your mouth? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Boom. Roasted. Now <laughs> go talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like, that, that was a little bit of my experience. I have probably talked about this on this podcast, but um, I felt the call, the call to be a worship minister from uh, junior high camp in seventh grade. And it did not sing until senior year of college. Um, and usually people associate singing with being a worship minister. So it was, that was about 10 years of like, I feel called to do this but I feel not equipped to do this. I feel like I'm not gifted to do this. So I must not be a person who's supposed to do this. I'll just be like a good volunteer who works at Starbucks or something and whatever. And then I met my wife and she was a great keyboard player. And I was like, I get it, God, you're setting me up for this. She's going to be the worship minister. I'll be the greatest volunteer anybody's ever seen. Uh, But I'd been praying for this. Just, Mm -hmm. just simply like God help make me into a good worship minister. And, uh, like he did it. I'm not, I'm not trying to brag, but like he did, like I am, I oh, am yeah, a worship okay minister. To brag on God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he did but it. Like yeah. he did it. And it, and in, I, we could go into more detail some other time, but in ways that feel like I obviously didn't do that. Like even, even during college, my roommate was like better at everything than everyone. 
and I was I was living with him. Yeah. Yeah. Can you know can you attest yes. to that? Yes, okay. I can attest. Yeah. Uh I don't mean that in a in a in a way to try to tear down him like personality wise, but like he was just good at everything. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there watching it with one skill above him, which is drumming, which nobody's like, we need a good worship minister. How how well can they play the drums? Nobody's asked that ever. Um so yeah. Anyway, that was a lot of talking, but that's such a simple, like ask God for it. Even in like, you can, you can say that for the rest of this, you can ask God for revitalizing your congregational worship, prayerful attitude as a church. Um, You can also ask him to help you cultivate a prayer filled life. It's so, it seems so weird to say, God help me want to pray because you're praying when you're saying that, but also he has the power to do anything and, and uh, you're just trying to orient your heart around what you, your mind knows is good. Yeah. And a prayer-filled life uh, is, a, is a conversation. It's, it's an ongoing conversation with God. And I've, I remember when I was young and I discovered that for the first time that, oh, prayer is, is a conversation. It's just talking to God, walking, uh, driving, whatever you're doing. It's just talking. And when you read the Psalms, it's very clear that some of those Psalms are very conversational. Um, yeah, there's poetry uh, for, for sure, but some of them are just, uh, it's kind of all over the place. The psalmist will just kind of jump around and it does feel like a conversation, kind of free flowing. So I think that's the good news that yeah, any, anyone can pray. Um, yes, there are prescribed prayers that we can memorize and, and, and recite and reflect on, but anyone can just talk to God and have that conversation. Yeah. And it's always interesting to, to call it a conversation because we don't always hear back um, but I think it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the whole writing thing. Like sometimes you answer your own thoughts in, in your prayers, right? Like you, when you're praying, it comes back, back to you in some form or fashion. I feel like part of it, part of the difficulty is when we have a conversation with somebody else, we're having a conversation with a finite being and so the ways they can respond are speaking to you or using technology, including pen and paper, but like email or text or call or whatever, FaceTime, um, to talk to you. But when we talk to God, we expect that same phone conversation answer that we hear in our ear, even if we can't see him in front of us. But um, God has inspired all of scripture with his own words, his own thoughts. It's living, breathing, and active, mm-hmm. sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, he also sent his son um, who's alive and well, I always say this after, uh, I said this after I realized that communion didn't have to be depressing, that the name communion w- was kind of awkward with the idea that it's a memorial. So I, I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I'd start leading worship and, and then we get to communion. I'd say, um, like, God, we thank you that, uh, that, um, you were sent to this earth, that you, um, lived a life, um, pushing back the powers of sin and death, um, that you died for our sake and that you rose again and that you're leaving, living and breathing and doing pretty good right now. (laughs) He's doing all right. (laughs) Checked his blood pressure. He's healthy. Um, and so like Jesus is alive right now. He's, he's like the image of God and the Holy spirit, God's Holy spirit indwells Christians. So like the number of, and God is also like in charge of the, the known universe, well, not the known universe, all the whole universe, all creation. So like the amount of ways he can respond to you mm-hmm. is a lot. 
He can respond to you through you, through another person, through a direct voice, through um, circumstances and whatever. And uh, sometimes we, a lot of us just haven't built up that skill of listening yet. Um, even just being quiet yeah, to listen, but yeah. Yeah. So Zach Hicks has a section about uh, singing our prayers and uh, he's got four different things here. And I guess I can just kind of list those off as well. So singing our prayers unites the gathered church. Singing our prayers focuses our wandering thoughts. Singing our prayers inflames our withering affections Singing our prayers engages our entire bodies. Yeah, I think that inflames our withering affections is what I was trying to talk about earlier. But um, that's that's where I got this section from. I appreciate how he starts it because he said uh, um, this guy named Matthew Westerholm uh, wrote a blog post that said, because of congregational song, our prayer lives are better than we think. Um, if if we try to to distill prayer to only mean like we said at the beginning, eyes closed, head bowed, hands folded, um, then our prayer lives are pretty poor. But, uh, or it could be pretty poor, I'm not assuming. Um, but because of our singing in, in churches, we're actually doing prayer more than we think. Um, I've, I've uh, this first point, singing our prayers unites the gathered church. I've heard this point a lot, that like at very other times in a church service, very few other times in a church service do we like recite something like, like sometimes we, we recite a scripture together or there's a call and response scripture or prayer thing or something. But like during a sermon, you're sitting and, and uh, watching and listening and during communion, you're, you're praying, but probably individually or a short prayer, uh, perfectly led thing by the guy at the front who's reading the words of institution. And, um, this is my body and all that. Um, but those are, even if we're unified in what we're doing at no point, do we look like the little green aliens from toy story more than when mm-hmm. we're singing where we're all in unison. We're all like, like one joint voice. At the claw. The claw. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's why I like CCLI so much is that we can see what churches around the world are singing and that unites us in some way. Because if we're choosing those same songs, then we know that we're going to be singing the same songs that Church on the Street is going to be singing, and um, and and even with the uh, the church calendar, like being able to know that there are people reading the same things that you're reading that day, like that's just really unifying and cool that we can we can do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting par- uh, paradoxes of our time is that we do have more than ever um, a number of songs to choose from. I mean, all over the world, just I don't even know how many millions of mm-hmm. songs mm-hmm. Are, are being sung and being written. And yet we have CCLI, which uh, people all over the world subscribe to, and we can get the, you know, the top 100. Yeah. And it is, it's true. People all over uh, the world are singing in different languages, singing the same songs. It's probably more than any other time in church history. Have we been singing the same songs yeah. together? You know, back in the day we had hymnals that were published and shared and we thought, Oh yeah, we all have the same Canon, but that was still fairly limited. But, uh, but with modern, you know, worship internet. And also all those hymnals had like 900 songs. So you pick 50 and the church down the street picks mm-hmm. a different 50. You can have, oh, the math, 18 churches <laughs> singing their own 50 songs that never overlap, mm. which I like wouldn't happen. I feel like there are ones that are, that are common enough that everybody would sing. But like, yeah, 
we can see more than ever. We're more connected than ever mm-hmm. and we can sing the same song that everybody else is singing. I used to think when I saw, um, like videos of missionaries in Africa and then all these little like Ugandan boys singing mighty to save and whatever the language of Uganda is. I'm like, ah, oh, that's American colonialism and it's fine, whatever. But, but now I'm seeing Australian. like Australian, Australian colonialism. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, that like for whatever negatives there are, that that's not a song that their country wrote. They're singing a song that the world is singing, that the, mm-hmm. the world church is singing. And it's, it's really beautiful and awesome. And, and, uh, I kind of love it. Mm-hmm. Which just goes back to how important it is that we sing good songs, right? Yeah. The songs that are worthy, yes. uh, worthy of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the, the, the I'm going to skip to the fourth point, you know, singing, uh, our prayers engages our entire bodies. Mm-hmm. It is a very physical act, you know, yeah. just the singing itself. Uh, then the, the it, to me, it just, in, uh, it, it requires emotion, emotions as well. I mean, my hands start moving. Um, I start swaying. Uh, yeah. yeah. The whole body is evolved in a way that it really isn't in any other aspect of the of the worship service. I'm going to refrain from another Baptist joke, but even just the singing itself, (laughs) if the rest of your body was like, like all your limbs were paralyzed and you were laying down just the singing itself. uh, 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 Zach Hicks makes a point in here that like it engages uh, your mouth for like diction and pronouncing words. And it engages like your diaphragm and your lungs and your, and like, like enough of your body, uh, honestly more than like I just said, everything else than, than sitting and listening to a sermon, than than whatever it engages enough of your body, just singing. And then there are a lot of traditions that also, um, totally encourage swaying and moving your hands. And, and, uh, um, if you're like my, uh, father-in-law's tradition, um, he was an assemblies of God preacher for 20 years. Like you get excited enough, you start this little, like, jogging parade around the, around the sanctuary. Cause you're just like so swept up in it that your body mm-hmm. has to keep moving to keep along with where your heart and your soul and your mind are. And you're just, you just start jogging. I've never done that, but I kind of want to. Well, of course the famous uh, King David. Yeah. You know, yeah. Dancing with all of his might. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. And, you know, embarrassing himself in front of everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Very, uh, uh, engaging physically. Yeah. There's a, um, there's a, a funk cover group on YouTube called scary pockets yeah. and they're super good, but they have the spinoff channel called professional musicians react. Um, and they, they have like these different musicians on here that are stupid good. They're like studio musicians and people who know music theory better than Bach or something. And they're all super good, but that like, they'll say a bunch, like, how do you know if a song is funky? Well, if it gets the booties moving, like that's how you know it's good. There's no like you don't look at the notation and you're like, oh, this note right here makes it funky. You're like, mm-hmm. watch the people while this music is being played, and that'll tell you. And that this isn't the same exact conversation, but like, like yeah. the fact that that good, um, well written music from a musical perspective, um, matched with solid prayers from a faith relating with God, theological perspective, when those two meet, it's just a powerful experience. Mm. Yeah. You talk about funk music. That's like one of my loves. So yeah, uh, we went, my wife and I went and saw Corey Wong and the Wong notes oh, yes. in Kansas city back in November. And yeah, literally that whole entire show, I was up front we were right next to the speaker and my, my foot could not stop the whole entire show. It was like an hour and a half of me just standing there with my foot just going. And by the time my, my calf was so sore, (laughs) I can't hardly walk back to the car. Yeah. That's so good. 
Yeah, that's the power of music. Um, there's even a quote in here. Oh, I want to find it now. Um, um, this is from John Wesley. I loved this quote. Uh, he's talking about, this is in his rules for congregational singing. He says, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you are half dead or half asleep, but lift, lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, no more ashamed of its being heard than when you sang the song of Satan, songs of Satan. Like, like you're just naturally attuned to like be involved in singing into the power of music and, and for it to be a powerful factor in your life. I remember hearing Cy Huffer at college heights one time preach about this. And he said he was at a, like sometimes people have a hard time being physically expressive in congregational musical worship. And he said, you know, I'm, I've, I've heard the arguments like, you know, that's just not what, what's natural. And some people just worship. This is not a, a hit on, non-physically expressive worshipers. But he said he went to a U2 concert that was like full of people in their fifties and sixties, the same kind of Mm -hmm. people who would be like, like this is getting a little too physically expressive for me and just watch people raise their hands at a U2 concert and really get into it. And he's like, we don't have a problem (laughs) with the music. We just have a problem with what category it fits in or what we think is acceptable or what we're used to. Mm -hmm. But like, people clearly don't have a problem getting into music and being physically expressive. Right. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The, you know, the Psalms tell us several times to shout or just make a loud sound, make yeah. a, you know, joyful noise. That is the way it's translated. And I think about, um, you know, uh, sports gatherings, you know, chief yeah. stadium, the loudest, you know, place mm-hmm. on the planet. Uh, yeah. At, over, a over a game, you know, we can, yeah. we can get that excited about something that's so meaningless. And yet, uh, you don't have that kind of energy in the church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think about mosh pits and crowd surfing. That's, that's my yeah. history. So <laughs> Being seriously in, in metal bands and just watching these kids go crazy over your music and it's just screaming, you know, it's not even words you can understand most of the time, <laughs> but they're, they're still moving and yelling and yeah. I think about, um, I like how we're just trading stories. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think about, um, one of my first outings, uh, when I was on frontline for a year as a drummer with Matt, um, and we led worship at a church that morning of like three or so hundred in like Oklahoma. I don't know. Um, and it was a pretty normal church experience for me. It was very, like very much what I expected it to be based on my other church experiences. And then we went to a church of 20 people that night for their feast of tabernacles celebration. Oh yeah. We set up our whole band of eight on stage and a, and a sound and a projection slides person, our whole 10 person group set up for these 20 people. And it was so great because we started playing. We're in the middle of the first song and a guy in the back row sounds his shofar and I, <laughs> I had never experienced that i looked at our electric guitarist like is your amp on fire yeah. right now there's some weird noise i look, I look back at the sound guy the, the feedback where's the feedback coming from and this guy's just blowing a ram's horn and i was like oh my gosh this is incredibly yeah. biblical that's fantastic um, it was so good but that's just like the exuberance he was it was it was that he was getting into it and then was like, this could use a little more Ram's horn. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Oh yeah. I love it so much. Anyway, 
but yeah, singing our prayers and cages, our whole bodies. Um, one thing I really appreciated though, is that he also said singing our prayers focuses our wandering yeah. thoughts. I feel like maybe we need to sing our prayers more in this episode. Yeah. I feel Let's like focus our wandering thoughts. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> I feel like a lot of the, I've had this thought a lot. Um, the difference between the professionalism of how to do certain acts or the like lack of needing hard skills for, let, let me clarify. So like preaching is a, is a professional kind of thing. There's a professional skill set associated with being a good public speaker, but reading scripture while it's still like, it's good to be good at it. It's good to like read it dynamically. Anybody can get up and read scripture and they'll still have read scripture by the end. And the scripture won't be any worse or better because it's the same when they read it. Like, it's just that way. Um, they may read it more dynamically or engagingly, um, but like it's still the scripture. And so like singing when you're leading a song and the sound system's up super high and whatever, like that is a professional skill set with, with a whole band. You need to be good at singing in order to lead that song. But in like a, like an acapella church of Christ, there's less of that pressure on you in a lot of high churches where the priest is the preacher and the song leader. Um, he doesn't have to be good at it because the moment, the second word gets out of his mouth, you can't hear him over the congregation singing. And so some of that burden of the, the professional skill set required to, to do that part of the service for all singers is lessened because everybody's singing they're, number one, they're participating with you. Number two, they hopefully can hear the congregation pretty well to where all of the onus of like trying to sing that song well is not on you. That that everybody's mom and whoever in the congregation too is also singing that. And it's like like part of how it sounds is everybody's voices and not just yours. And so there's no pressure to for you to make it engaging in that way, uh, there's not no pressure, but there's way less pressure than everybody silently watching you sing a song when everybody's participating with you. It helps focus your thoughts. And I feel like the same idea in song and the same idea read as poetry with everybody else silent is, is, uh, I feel like I get it better through a song if the words are slow enough, at least, but I get it better through a song because we're all doing it. And because it's just engaging and dynamic and beautiful because everybody's doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact, that, you know, focusing our wandering thoughts, it's almost meditative. Yeah. Where we're everything that's around us is completely cut off except for what we're doing in that moment. It's yeah. pretty beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's part of why I like part, part of why I think is redeeming about modern cutting edge church lighting technology and all that. We talked about architecture and, and how, um, the modern church, I, I say the modern church, there are, there are churches with old church architecture today, but what I mean is like contemporary churches that like have the lighting focus you up at the front. It's, it's trying to do what these songs are doing is focus our wandering thoughts. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about the thermostat on the back right corner of the room because we can't see it. Mm -hmm. We can't see anything other than the silhouettes of people's heads, and what's lit on the stage. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and maybe this is just me speaking as an older person and I probably do represent a certain perspective that the, um, the lights, uh, can be a distraction. Mm -hmm. Um, so when singing engages, focuses our wandering thoughts, uh, I find, and maybe this is again, just me, but yeah, sometimes all of the things that are happening visually can be a distraction. So I think we need to be careful that there are songs that, you know, with a lot of energy. Yeah. Maybe we need a lot of lights and, mm-hmm. and movement, but there are times where we need to just be a little more simple yeah. with it. And it certainly, you know, I'm just saying maybe that's a generational thing uh, with me. Uh, less is more. Yeah. It, it definitely c- could be, but I think there's just always room to overdo it. I think there's room to overdo it musically and lighting and aesthetically. And like there's, it's always trying to achieve a balance for the person's well-being. That's pastoral mm-hmm. worship technology, but it, it can very easily go overboard. But I think it could also be a generational thing, especially a term I've heard use us as technological natives. Um, I heard recently, I think it was on the Holy post, but it's from a year or two ago. Cause I'm catching up. Um, but uh, they were talking about a, a father was talking to his son about what he thought of the preacher's style and cadence and whatever. And the son was like, yeah, I think he's great. He sounds like a lot of people I listen to right now. And the father was like, you don't think he's speaking way too fast. And he realized his son listens to YouTube videos and podcasts on a time and a half speed. Mm-hmm. So yeah. his, his accustomed speaking like rap rapidity, yeah. uh, like how, like how fast he says words is, is a time and a half faster than people usually say. And that's just what he's accustomed to yeah. same as like the speed of English versus the speed of Mexican Spanish. It just flies by mm-hmm. compared to the speed at which I feel like English people talk. It's my, my aunt's a missionary in Mexico city. And when, when I hear her speak Spanish, it's like, it's not that I can't understand it only. It's also like, the speed at which each syllable comes out is like a hundred miles faster than mine. And I'm just not used to it. And it'd take me a while. Mm -hmm. So some of it might Mm -hmm. be that, especially for our brothers and sisters from churches of Christ, where it's just house lights and windows and, and you just have to pay attention in a normal church building. Like they would be really freaked out by what we do now or, or feel really out of, out of place, feel not at home with what we do now. They'd probably feel the same way in a high church where the walls look tattooed with a sleeve with all these icons and all this stuff going on. It's like you could be in there for months and not look at everything there is to look at during all the services. But yeah. So I, I agree that like there's, there's room we need to make um, to not overdo it, to not alienate people by trying to create a, uh, oversensitizing immersive experience with lighting and, and video and slides and whatever. Can I read you a poem that I wrote? Please. Cool. So with it being the Advent season, I'm a part of a poetry group online where we have a different prompt each, each day and we write a poem each day of Advent. Uh, so this was on November 30th and the, the prompt was dwelling place. You are not confined to the box that we have designed warehouses filled with broken parts that fail to mend the wounded hearts of those who enter in concert lights and smoke that choke and screen the truth intended to be seen amplified and projected words that pierce like arrows that cut like swords, but only leave us bleeding, wanting more likes and views from those in our digital pews. We have fallen on bended knee to vanity to our own philosophies 
glory dwell within, free us from our sin. That's good. Yeah, that's good stuff. So very, yeah. very on point to what we're kind of talking about yeah. right now. It's just, yeah. um, there's, yeah, there's a lot going on in our churches right now that are very distracting. Yeah. But when we, when we sing as one, our songs, our prayers, um, align and kind of block out a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, and even in those moments where, you know, there's lots of distracting things. I think if we just kind of close our eyes in those moments and sing, like that's, we're, we're, we're zoned in. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I think this second point really ties in with the third one, which is the last one. Cause Matt skipped to four. Um, but singing our prayers inflames our withering affections. Um, there was a whole book. Oh, I'm going to get this so wrong. Jonathan Edwards, the religious affection, our religious affection or something like that. Um, where he just tries to like revamp and revitalize the need for, um, loving God and, and prioritizing love and our emotions in, uh, in our, our faith and our worship. Um, and I, I've tried to talk to people about this again. We'll get to this in chapter 13, the worship pastor's emotional shepherd. Um, but this touches on it that, um, I feel like a lot of the, the major thought movement of modernism. So we had pre-modernism, which is like a, a, a farmer plants a field. And then in order to harvest it, he'll, uh, he'll go out there and sacrifice an animal at the temple to the, the, the deity that, that promotes good harvest or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, like, like the divine is part of human life. And then there's a modernist trend of thought, which is there's one black and white answer to everything. And science probably has it. And if we just like research hard enough and do whatever, there'll be one good black and white answer to everything that, that turned human beings into data computers in people's minds. Emotion is bad. It's unreliable as evidence. Therefore it shouldn't be whatever. And so trying to like reclaim emotion for people and, and remind people that, that in order to find a whole person, you have to find a person with thoughts and priorities, but also with emotions. We're, we're emotional because God's emotional. Emotion is part of who we are. And if we don't shepherd that part, cause we think it's a bad part of us, then we're going to miss part of who we're shepherding. Um, and so it's important that like, singing has the power to stir up our religious affections. That's AFF affections, our religious emotions. Um, has the power to inflame our withering emotions to, to stir up those things that we know are true, but that, that we like are more firmly resolved in because our emotions have been stirred up. It's the same with like wanting to protect your kid when they're in danger. Is that a rational decision? Kinda. Is that an emotional decision? Yes. Is it a good decision? Yes. Like it isn't a, it isn't a faulty thing. It's part of us. We're emotional about what we care about. Yeah. And from my experience, the most emotional part of a service, worship service is typically the singing. That's when I moved um, sometimes to tears, sometimes just you know, chills of, uh, or just a feeling of, of uh, you know, profound affirmation. And it's in the singing where that, that uh, happens for us, I think. So I think that's a great point. One last thing I wanted to note about um, this chapter. I think he makes a really good point right at the end. Um, he's quoting Jürgen, Jürgen Moltmann. Anyway, he's from Europe, as you can tell by his name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I knew exactly where at one point and I have forgotten, but uh, he was Miroslav Volf's teacher. Who's at somewhere else. Okay. Uh, but he, uh, Jürgen makes this, this comment because God is Trinity, a unity of three persons. So we, as the image of God's communal oneness, become a kind of revelation of God to the world when we sing our prayers. I thought this was a really cool point. It, it kind of goes back to the singing our prayers unites the gathered church. And I kind of wish he just put it there, but like in the same way that God's will is one and that God is in perfect harmony with the three members of the Trinity at all times that he is in perfect oneness. We kind of were a revelation of that fact when we sing as one group, when we're like speaking with one voice, reciting the same thing. Um, and there's just a really cool image with that, not to talk about architecture again, but when I interned at College Heights, that's one of the things I loved most about it. I'd been in rectangular worship spaces my whole life. And then to be a part of a, a half dome shape, a semicircle shape. Um, the first time I saw it, I was like, this looks big. This looks intimidating. This looks like a, like a, like a concert or like a whatever. Um, but as I, as I got to be there longer, the thing I loved is you got to see everybody. If, uh, if you were in the front row, you still saw people in the congregation because you're in a semicircle. And that was one of my favorite things. Worship, it was, it was harder for worship to be an individualistic thing when you were gathered as a group because you could always see other people in the congregation. Um, I thought that was really special. You could, you could never miss this point completely that when you're coming together as a, as a worship gathering of Christians, you are resembling God in his oneness when you sing and you can never not see it unless you're looking straight up. There's something I was thinking about this, uh, this chapter made me think of, and maybe he says it somewhere else in the book, but you guys know the acronym ACTS, you know, ACTS. This is how I learned to pray when I was a kid, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and submission. And I think that template has really informed me when I plan and lead worship. Like, I just want to make sure I cover all five of those every time. And uh, so what's the fifth one? uh, Submission or surrender. Okay. Yeah, I guess I always only had four. Most people just teach four, but I I learned five. uh, So submission or surrender uh, as as a as a fifth um, aspect of prayer. You know, not my will, but yours be done. And that's often yeah. how we structure service anyway. The, the you know, the, the ultra call or a, a moment of surrender of commitment. Here's what I'm going to do. So uh, I can, I just can't help. I can't think about, you know, worship uh, the worship leader as a, uh, a prayer leader without that acronym and how it informs it. Cause it's such a natural flow. You know, it's the, yeah. it's kind of the Isaiah six uh, encounter summarized, you know, there's adoration of God uh, on his throne and then Isaiah is aware of his own sinfulness. That's the confession. And then Thanksgiving, uh, you know, we experience God's grace. It's testimony. It's uh, what he's done for us. And then, um, you know, submission is, uh, you know, ask God, we're asking God to do something. And then the response of here am I, send me, I'm going. Yeah. Um, so I did, that's not in the chapter, but I just, I feel like, ah, that's a, that's a great, I know it's old. It's been around forever, but it works and it rings true, uh, when it comes to worship leading, worship planning. I just I had another thought as you yeah. were talking about the unity aspect of, of worship and, and, uh, you know, I haven't studied every religion in the world, but it's really struck me that Christianity, as far as I know, 
you know, maybe the one or, or one of a few that sing as it's dominant, you know, one of the dominant ways that we express worship, uh, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, these major religions, I don't know that they involve singing. They might involve some chanting, prayers, that kind of thing. But uh, Islam, uh, I don't think there's any singing. Again, there's there's the cantillation or the, the chanting of prayers you know, somewhat musically, but I don't think anything, any other religion really approaches Christianity when it comes to it. I think that's just something that's always been kind of fascinating, unique about it is that uh, we sing, we compose songs that kind of sets it apart. So let's plug something. Um, every episode we try to give some resource or something to check out or something like that. Um, this time I think we might plug two things. Um, but the thing I want to plug, especially in this episode, the worship pastor's prayer leader, I want to, um, suggest as a resource for honestly, any Christian anywhere, but this is a resource for your own, um, personal prayer regimen or whatever, um, is the 1979 book of common prayer. Um, I say 1979 because just like a lot of Bible translations and whatever, they'll have an updated version every, however often. And the most recent one is 1979. This is the book of common prayer for the Anglican Episcopal church. Um, but what I've used out of it for my own prayer routine is there's a thing called uh morning prayer right to it's like r i t e right to um anyway it's just a like morning prayer guide it could be a whole service and i've sat through a few like morning prayer kind of services like this um but it's a morning prayer guide that could take you 20 something 25 30 minutes depending on how you decide to interact with all the different elements Um, but it helps make sure that in your own prayer routine, you touch a lot of bases. I know when I pray on my own, I might pray for 10 seconds, might pray for five minutes at about minute nine. I might be running out of stuff to say. I, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to think of everything that would be good to pray at a certain time. I mean, in those moments where you're like, like a morning quiet time routine kind of prayer time. Um, but this morning prayer that it has you go through has a, a section for confession, um, a section for um, knowing that you're forgiven and assurance of pardon. It has a section to pray the Lord's prayer to pray and read and reflect over different Psalms and different passages of scripture. Um, it has a section to pray for missions um, for the evangelization, evangelization of the whole world um, and for God to wrap that all up in himself. It has a, um, sections for a lot of different stuff and it helps you feel really well-rounded, um, in your morning prayer routine and your prayer life with God. Um, yeah. And you don't need to buy it. It's online for free as a PDF somewhere. Um, they also have apps. I have an app on my phone, some sort of book, a common prayer app that has it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's another, uh, another couple that I could recommend as well that are kind of in, in the same yeah. vein. Um, the worship source books, one that I use quite often. Um, second edition because first like edition everything is else, for it, chumps. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, it updates, but yeah, it's great. Um, especially during this Advent season, there's been a lot of stuff that I've used, um, as, uh, as you know, we're lighting the candles at the end of our service. There's uh, liturgy that goes through Isaiah. 
that we, we read as we light each candle. Uh, so that's, that's helpful. I did a night of worship not too long ago where we split it up into four sections. And for each of those sections, I had something that I used from this book, uh, as prayers to help guide us into, into those things. So, um, yeah, just very, very handy for different situational things that you would need in ministry. There's lots of calls to worship. There's lots of, um, closing prayers, things that, yeah, can really just help you connect anything that you need. Um, kind they're, of bridge those gaps yeah, in services. They're both good resources for planning a service, but I feel like the worship source book is a better resource for that. Yes. Yeah. Way better. Common and prayer it, would be more of like a prayer life kind of thing. Yeah. Probably, yeah. It has some, it has some good, like, like actual gathered worship service stuff, but the worship source book for people who are not in a high church context or are, it's mm-hmm. good for any of it, but it's, it's more accessible for somebody like me who's not from that context. And that's not a free resource. I think it's like 35 bucks um, for um, the book. I did find a free PDF of the oh, first version somewhere. Okay. I don't know where it is. Gotcha. I don't know if I can even find it anymore. I bet well, they took it down as a pirated copy or something. <laughs> we'll link uh, all these in the description. Um, but the last one would be the book of common worship, Yeah, which is very similar to all these as well. Just more, more resources, more prayers, um, more, yeah. more ways. It's to, the Presbyterian one. Correct. But they're all Christians. Mm-hmm. True. And we can, uh, to, to use an idea from C.S. Lewis, although I'm sure somebody said it before him, um, he was trying to talk about the depth and width, um, that we can use to research and know and, and learn about stuff. And he both talked about, um, going into the past, um, to help look over our blind spots in the, in the present and also going wide to other, um, traditions, other denominations to, again, look over our blind spots in our own tradition and, and, uh, worship and think and whatever more holy mm-hmm. W H O L L Y holy. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again, Matt, for uh, joining us on this podcast. We, uh, we really, really appreciated time together and yeah. hearing your insights and um, yeah, we hope we can have you on again sometime. Yeah. I'd love to come back. You guys are a lot of fun and I enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm a faithful uh, listener to the respond yes. worship podcast. So. Somebody yeah. besides our moms, <laughs> yes. <laughs> your, your free, your resources, usually free yeah. are fantastic. Well, we strive you. for that. We appreciate right. that yeah. segment. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I have one question though. Will you listen to this episode even though you were on it? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. I find those things painful. Listening yeah. to myself, uh, whether it's a worship service or uh, teaching, yeah, it's generally painful. So yeah. No. Well, hey, I another resource that. that we could plug here at the end is your website. Yeah. That's a great website. Great, yeah, great resource. I, have a, I started a website a couple of years ago. It's just called mattstafford.com. Uh, not to promote myself or anything, but Shane, Please Wood, do. Shane Wood did the same thing. So I'm just yeah, following his example. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, so I've got uh, video teaching on most most of the Psalms. There are uh, PowerPoints, uh, 10, 15 minute presentations that give an overview of the Psalm and uh, some comments along the way. And then, uh, gosh, some articles that I've written, um, blog posts uh, that I was doing for a while. And then um, I'm, this, I'm do- on this journey of a three-year journey here of, of uh, writing devotionally on all of the Psalms and I'm on 103 right, right now. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. So that's I love it too. Yeah. I've used this website so much over the years, uh, since, since you've had it up, it's been really helpful for, for me, uh, just cause I, when I was taking Psalms and college, it, it 
there wasn't a whole lot that I, I, I mean, you can't cover everything, you know, <laughs> in a semester. So, uh, it's just, it was good to go back and to, to relearn a lot of things and it's helped me set up some stuff for services. And, um, so yeah, it's definitely a good resource. I suggest I'm, it highly. Yeah. I'm surprised at the reach of it. I look at the analytics and I've had over 4,000 unique, uh, views or people that are on it regularly. So yeah, I'm glad it's a blessing. This is Jeremiah and Ryan and Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Well, see we ya. won't see you. Well, we, well, we do this. You'll every listen time. to us next you'll, time. Exactly. You'll, you'll listen to us next time. If you would like to, please. Mm-hmm. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Respond Worship Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to our website and social media. Follow and subscribe to keep up with new episodes and feel free to rate and review us. We want this to be the best possible resource for you and your team, so your feedback is extremely important. We also want to hear from you. Send us your questions, content suggestions, ministry wins, and stories, and we will gladly consider them for future episodes. Just email us at podcast at respondworship.org. That's podcast at respondworship.org. We look forward to welcoming you into another conversation in a couple of weeks. Take care.